this podcast is all about having inspiring chats with people who are from all different walks of life doing incredible things. This week, we get to welcome our first female guest on the podcast, Enia Luko. She's a great friend of mine, someone who's had an incredible career both on and off the pitch, playing at some incredible clubs, representing her country, uh, doing the Olympics twice. And we get to talk about so many different things in today's episode, from her career to what it was like growing up um, and more. I can't wait for you to listen to this episode and... (laughs) Just enjoy because this really is such a great episode. Any, honestly, you are just a woman of many talents. You are not only an incredibly successful person on the field, off the field, a successful lawyer, an author. I could continue, but you are also the first, the first female on this podcast. I had to keep that spot open. Yeah, absolutely, man. You are the first female on this podcast. Um, I felt like I had to save it because when we talk, there's so much that we talk about and we often have lengthy conversations about everything, you know, the way of the world, politics, putting the world's wrong to rights, everything. And I just felt like having you on here, you've got such an incredible story in yourself. Um, you know, and if people want to know a bit more about that, then they can go and pick up a copy of They Don't Teach This. <laughs> you know, today I just I felt like it was right just to get you on and to just to just chat it up, really. So uh, first and foremost, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for that glowing introduction. I'm so happy to be here on this podcast. So proud of what you're doing always. Um, and yeah, man, you 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 kept that quiet. First female. Wow. Um <laughs> You know, that's that's interesting you say that because my my kind of life, that's quite reflective of my life. I've always been quite comfortable being the first to do something and open up the door for, for other people. So um, that 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 makes me feel good that I'm the first female. Thank you for that. I felt like it was necessary as well with all of the accolades that you've you've gone on to collect over the years. And it's a shame that we can't record this like face to face at your house or something and show all of the the trophies and the medals and everything that you've 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 collected over your career because I mean like like wow honestly you know some of the things that you've done the stories that you've got again that people can read about in your book but you know you've just you've killed it both on and off so I guess we should start with um with a bit of background and, and context um into sort of who you are and sort of your early influences when it came to to football, first and foremost. So I guess that's sort of where everything began for you. Yeah, so um, I'm from Birmingham. You might not be able to tell. Um, but yeah, I'm, I grew up in Birmingham. I'm Nigerian. My, both my parents are Nigerian, so of Nigerian descent. Um, and so grew up on a council estate in Birmingham in Kings Norton. And, you know, football was like just a gift that I was born with no one taught me how to play football it's like no one sort of said right kick the ball like this or do this I just it was just natural um so when I when I used to go outside and play on the grass field they used to dribble around all the boys and it quickly became sort of my my form of acceptance it quickly quickly became my identity um like oh the girl that played oh that's the girl that plays football you know on the estate and Obviously, that gave me that made me feel ten foot tall because the reality was I was this small little black girl in a group of white boys. I wasn't really meant to fit in, right? But 
football was my quickest way of just assimilating. Um, and so pretty early on, I became quite obsessed with football. That's all I wanted to do, just play outside, play football, play outside, play football. And I was lucky that obviously I had my brother who's two years younger than me, who's super talented as well. So football for me has always been my passion. It's always been um, like, like a flame that never, never goes out. Um, and, you know, I often say that when you get into the professional game, the politics and all the bullshit that comes with the professional game, you lose that fire. You lose that sort of childlike love of the game. And, and it's really tapping back into that to make you go again as a professional that I think I needed to do. But that was my start, you know, we, very humble beginnings. My mom worked, you know, two jobs to kind of keep us going. Um, but very, very, she was successful in their own right, built her own business. Um, but the starting point was, was, was not easy. Um, and, uh, but, you know, really, really happy childhood. I had a really, really, when I look back on my childhood, I'm like, yeah, you know, I had fun in the nineties, you know? <laughs> and I guess with the experiences that you were aided with growing up, it kind of helped shape you for the person that you are today, obviously, um, with a lot of the, the things that you saw and experienced. Um, growing up especially, what was it like for you to be sort of not just the only black surrounded by a group of, of white, but to be a black girl, to be obsessed with football in a predominantly, yeah. you know, when it's some, when it, the game itself, you know, when people think of football, they tend to think of, of the male side of things. Yeah. And what was that like for you growing up in order to sort of fit in? Well, from the age of sort of five up until 12, really, um, it was a positive affirmation for me. So as a girl playing football amongst the boys, I was one of them. So I used to ask them to call me Eddie, not any. I wanted to be a boy, you know, that's that's how badly I wanted to kind of be seen as part of them. Um, I used to only wear track suits. I wanted a BMX like the boys. I wanted the same trainers as the boys, you know. So it was positive affirmation for me. It was only until I got to like school tournaments where I was playing for the school team, which was more organized football. And then parents started like making comments like, oh, there's no rules that allow girls to play football. Why is she playing? And I would hear that and internalize that. And obviously as a kid who's constantly had positive reinforcement, you get to 12 school tournaments and you're hearing these parents say these things. I, I, just, I struggled with it. And so for a little while, I fell out of love with football. I wanted to play tennis. So I played tennis for a little bit. And it, this kind of coincided with the, with the Williams sisters being quite prominent on the TV. You know, they had the beads in their hair and, you know, they were successful females on TV. It was, it was attainable and accessible, accessible to me. I didn't see that with football. My idols growing up were, were, were men, Ryan Giggs, Eric Cantona, those guys. So I tried tennis for a bit, but to be honest, Zach, I was dead at tennis. I wasn't very good. Um, so I realized pretty, pretty quickly that I wasn't going to be as good at tennis as I was at football. Um, and so I kind of went back to it, but I remember that period where people kind of questioned my identity as a, as a female footballer. And that, that was tough. That was tough at quite a young age. And I can imagine as well, you know, you're still trying to sort of figure out who you are at this time as well. You know, you're trying to figure out 
what your interests are and sort of the person that you want to be and so I kind of struggle with this sense of figuring out where you fit in it's incredibly difficult and especially for you know when you're at a point in your life where growing up is not essentially easy you know it's not something that people tend to 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 you know, excel in, you know, you, you go through a lot of hardship and struggles to figure out the person that you want to be. At what point do you think that you then sort of fell back into love with the game? Yeah, I think it was after, after I realized tennis wasn't really going to do it for me. Tennis was, tennis is quite a patient sport. You have to be quite patient. There's, you have to, it's kind of controlled aggression this controlled pace, you know, I was very fast when I was younger. Well, I was fast throughout my career. So I used to get so frustrated. <laughs> you know, I used to get really frustrated playing tennis because it just wasn't, I just felt like it wasn't tapping into a, 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 an energy that I wanted to show through football. Football, I was fast. I was relentless. I was like, um, so that was it really. That was where I knew that, okay, this football thing, like I'm going to do it regardless. And the other thing is, is that, you know, coming from a Nigerian background I was acutely aware that it wasn't also a thing really accepted in Nigerian culture you know girls didn't really play sport let alone football you know if you played tennis maybe a little bit acceptable if you were a dancer maybe a little bit acceptable. but football is a man's sport so that was a pressure as well I kind of rejected Nigerianness for a little bit I didn't really I didn't really kind of resonate with being Nigerian um, until later on in my life and when I got to university Um, and I just felt that you know I just wanted to be seen like I was with the boys on the estate and a lot of people kind of demonize growing up on estates they make it a negative but I thought it was a positive you know like just having boys knock on my door saying oh is any coming out Um, just that freedom and just that kind of humility that um came with like just riding our bikes and getting lost and you know but also knowing that right like all of our parents were working hard and you know giving us you know working hard to give us what we wanted you know whether it's trainers or a new bike or whatever so I'm really grateful when I look back that I grew up on that estate and you know that was my beginning and, and those boys made me feel really like I was someone like I had I had a lot of worth absolutely then moving on slightly falling back into love with with the game um and sort of the beginning of your professional career as well what was it like for you to your first kind of signing I guess when you first sort of were able to to realize that this is something that you weren't just good at but that you essentially could you know live out your your passion and do for your life um, yeah, so my first signing was at Birmingham um, when I was 14. And ironically, my first coach was Marcus Bignot, who is now the head coach at Aston Villa, who I hired at Aston Villa. Life is crazy, like how it goes full circle. Wow. He scouted me. Um, and, you know, he scouted me from a centre of excellence tournament. I think I was playing for like a local club first. And then I got scouted by Birmingham and he used to pick me up, take me to training because um, he knew my mom was working. So he picked me up and he was a professional footballer at the, at the time. So I was like, wow, like, you know, he used to pick me up in this ratchet. I, I can't remember what the name of the car was at the time. It was like quite high fashion, you know, in terms of the nineties, but 
it was this big bright red car and he used to pick me up and I'd go to training and there'd be older girls there and I used to think wow like I've made it you know this is we're all in the same kit because from where I was coming from it was just another level um so that was my first experience of kind of organized football and I and I played you know I played at 15 16 and like with girls way older than me um and I was one of the best players and scored goals and so I'm so grateful now when I look back because I've done a lot of reflecting since retiring particularly and I'm so grateful when I look back at the people that gave me a chance young like younger than normal you know 15 16 making your debut 17 making my debut for the England team like that's a choice do you know what I mean because often age is something seen as a barrier or oh, she's too young it's not ready yet um so I'm, I'm super grateful for, for, for that. And do you think that growing up sort of at the same time as, as getting involved with the game and being around all of these influences, you were able to become the best player that you possibly could quite early on? Because I guess when you then look at the, the record of sort of where you went and the yeah. evolution in your career, you know, you've had a, a stellar career at some incredible clubs that we'll get into, but... Do you think that earlier on, the fact that you were around all these influences helped you to then become that incredible player? 100%, because when you're given an opportunity when you're young, you have to be fearless. And then when you take that opportunity, that's what you internalise. You you then go, right, wow, like, I, I did it, you know? And so you become this fearless person, really. Um, and... I don't think there's any coincidence that there's a lot of players in the men's game and the women's game, take Wayne Rooney, for example, who came from council estates, were young, were given an opportunity young, took the opportunity and then just went, like they just flew. Um, and I kind of, I think that was my, my path. That was my trajectory. Um, I wasn't about to kind of, I wasn't about to flop when I was given the opportunity at a young age. So when you take it, it's then like, okay, cool. You know, I'm, I'm going to keep moving forward. Do you think it's a case that because a lot of these um, players now, especially, and, and back then as well, came from these backgrounds that were not difficult, yeah. but I guess, you know, there was some hardship that they had to go through. Do you think that that then meant that the hunger that they had to succeed was a lot more and the drive and determination that they had to succeed was just something which... It, it wasn't something which they just switched on. It was just something that they had, that they were instilled with. Yeah, no, that's the word right there, hunger. That's the word. You've got to keep that hunger through life. Um, humility is the foundation of everything. Um, and, and that humility of having less, but doing the most with having less is, um, is amazing. It, it kind of leads to boundless opportunities. Um, but it's that hunger, that desire. And a lot of us didn't really have a choice but to be good. I didn't, I didn't feel like I had a choice. Yeah. I always felt like I had to be better than the boys. I always felt like I had to be better than, you know, I went to a pretty much predominantly white school and because I wanted to. I wasn't, you know, it wasn't a thing where someone forced me to go. I wanted to kind of go to that school and because I was always comfortable being the odd one out anyway. It didn't really bother me. But when I got to the school, I, I couldn't flop. Like I, I, had, I had to be hungry to do better yeah um so that hunger is just something that just is instilled in you from the get-go because 
you're written off, whether you're written off or whether you're told that, oh, you know, I remember being told that, oh, I, I said to my teacher when I wanted to be a lawyer and she was kind of like, mm, you know, why not? How about nursing? Yeah. Now, there's nothing wrong with nursing, but that's not what I want to do. My skill set is to become a lawyer, but she was trying to, she didn't realize she was, she was capping my dreams because she'd never seen a girl have high aspirations like that. Yeah. That so glass ceiling. That glass just, ceiling. Yeah. So that then drives me to go, no, I can do it. What do you mean? I can yeah. do that. So that again, that hunger, that drive, whatever you want to call it, drive, hunger, humility. It, it's a really, really positive emotion. The opposite is apathy, um, complacency, uh, overindulgence, which I think a lot of, I hate to sound like someone who's like, oh, you know, in my day, but I think, I think a, a lot of the next generation want success like that. And they don't, they're not ready to develop that hunger, that patience that, that it takes to kind of feel it a little bit, feel that pinch a little bit and then push through, push through that pinch and then get what you want. Yeah, and I guess that comes from them necessarily, it's not their fault, but seeing things on social media almost happen overnight, you know, success stories happen right. within right. a day, you know. Think, exactly. Yeah, you know, in a couple of months or in a couple of weeks, you know, you go in somewhere and then you come out and your whole life's changed and and that's it. Yeah. But I guess for you, if someone was to go and have a look and, and, and see your career, you know, all the different clubs, all the different spells that you've done, all the different things where, you know, even just before, because I'm going to come on to this point about uh, 2012, which is obviously like a huge year for you. But, you know, when you look at up until then, you'd already have played at numerous clubs, you know, but that's okay. the thing. You know, people still would probably have been like, oh, people might have seen you in the Olympics and then thought like, oh, you know, wow, she's she's obviously made it because she's she's good enough to play here. But it's like they don't realize the determination that has gone into that or the years and years of, of you refining and honing your skill which I guess people don't see nowadays, which they could see because of course, social media gives people the option to, to share every aspect of their lives, but people don't like sharing anything but the highlights, which damages everyone who is the audience's view on things because they're just seeing, oh, there's the finished product, you know? Yeah, no, I think that, yeah, I think you've summed it up. I think ultimately, um, there has to be a journey and this is I talk a lot about this in in, the, in my book that you have to recognize that the journey will come with challenges will come with pitfalls but those are blessings they make you hungrier they make you more they make you wiser they make you kind of you know uh, if everything was just hunky-dory how boring is that you know but I think a lot of people aren't resilient enough to deal with those first of all they don't know they don't expect it and then when it comes it's like oh what do I do and it's like no we're stronger than we think we're more resilient than we think and actually this is a blessing that's going to push you on the other side to become something better you know I heard an amazing analogy not long ago by a preacher that I was listening to he said when you go in the gym and you're trying to build muscle you're, you're building the muscle by like resisting all of the time. It's push and pull, push and pull. You don't, you don't just turn up in a gym and the muscle's just there. There's pain involved. It'd be great if it was just there, wouldn't it? <laughs> you know I mean? there's, there's, some, there's some restriction, there's some pain, there's some, there's some thought where you've got to go, no, push through, I can do this. Um, 
So I look back at my football career and I just, I'm just like, do you know what? A lot of it was, was kind of upward trajectory and then there was challenges and then it was like, right, go again. Then there was challenges and then you, and I fell out of love with football for a bit. And, but it, it's all, it's all part of the beautiful journey. Obviously, um, you were fortunate enough to partake in not one but two uh, Olympics. Um, what was the experience like taking part in them incredible games and being essentially part of, of history on the world stage? Oh, the Olympics, the Olympics was um, life changing, really. Um, and it wasn't just for me personally, but for the whole of the women's game globally because we opened up the Olympics. Um, and for a long time, up until then, Zach, it was kind of like, oh, women's football is dead. Like, who are these girls? And there was lots of stereotypes around women's football that people just didn't take it seriously. But when we opened up the Olympics in front of 80,000 people, and I have to say, 80,000 people that weren't necessarily football fans, they were Olympics fans. So the Olympics is bigger than football, which, which helped us because people weren't coming at it with a direct comparison to men's football. They were just, I just want to enjoy the Olympics. But as a result of coming with that, I just want to enjoy the Olympics. They were like, right, these girls can play. So what happened is overnight, all of the perceptions changed. People were like, I want to see more. Who are these? Who's that girl? I'm going to follow her on Instagram. Who's that? It just kept. And then, and then the clubs, when it really got good is when the clubs now, Premier League clubs now started saying we want a women's team so from 2012 Arsenal Chelsea Man City all of these clubs started building women's teams and then you have professional contracts and then you have players getting better so it just had a snowball domino effect on the entire women's game so I always say the 2012 was a game changer for women's football without even trying to be and you know and then on top of that it was just the personal experience like waking up in the Olympic Village, walking walk to go and get some food and Mo Farah's in the lift with the same kit as me. Like, you know, I remember stood next to Anthony Joshua. This is before he was famous, actually, when he obviously as an Olympian, he wasn't a pro. I remember standing next to him being like, who is this guy? He's really good looking. You know, and it, we were just standing there getting, I can't remember what it was like. A, it was like an outdoor barbecue on the Olympic, in the Olympic Park. Stood next to Anthony Joshua. Didn't know who he was. And then it was only later I was like, right, was he? <laughs> so it was just an incredible experience. I saw Usain Bolt with his entourage walking around. I mean, I was a bit like, you'll be an extra, but it was, it was just amazing. It was an incredible experience. Um, and I suppose it's that sense of belonging that you've, you've all got as a, not just as a team right. of, of women, one team. Yeah. exactly, but it's just one team, you know, you're all unified yeah. with the kit and just, I think, a lot of sports, you know, predominantly, I guess, for, for, for women's as well, because it gave you that stage like never before. But the influx I remember hearing about that so many different sports were getting from interest of people wanting to suddenly partake was just incredible. Well, that's the thing. And because it was London as well, it just had just had a different vibe to it. Maybe I'm biased, but it just had a different vibe to it. There's lots of volunteers. There was you know, that it was great weather and, you know, it was East London. So Shoreditch was nearby and people just, the, it was the cultural experience was amazing. Um, and, you know, it, it was great also to kind of go and see different sports and how they do it. 
Because in football, I think we're quite snobby, Zach, to be honest. We think the whole world revolves around football, which to some extent it does, but there's other sports that exist, you know. So to see, like, swimmers training at five o'clock in the morning, I'm like, we've got it easy, you know, to, to see kind of, like, um, just the runners, how they train, and the basketball was amazing. Like, it was just, it was, honestly, I couldn't, it was a dream to be part of, and we can't, you know, it's difficult because we can't have, an, we, we don't necessarily have another, we didn't have another Olympics after that because the England, Wales, Scotland couldn't decide on how to manage manage the team. So they just said, we, we won't go. Um, but I think this year, I'm planning to be in Tokyo this year for the Olympics to, 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 to go out and work out there. So hopefully, you know, I'll be following the women's team out there. Fingers crossed. I guess... 2012 was a significant year for you, not just for the Olympics, but also you then were part of Chelsea, um, which is sort of yeah. where I first sort of heard about you. And then, you know, we touched contact, I think it was 2016, 2017 in your career yeah. at Chelsea. We sort of knew each other, but never had the opportunity to right. meet or gel. And it was only sort of, I guess, towards the end of your playing career that we were even able to make something happen. Right. And to- Right. To develop this but I mean no one can deny the incredible spell that you had at Chelsea I mean without you sounding old you know you are a bit of a, a Chelsea legend um, with yeah. what you were able to do at the club which is just phenomenal what was it like being part of the team and also having such an incredible spell it was amazing Chelsea's family to me you know, I, I, that word legend is is banded about a lot. But when it's said to me in relation to Chelsea, I just feel so much pride because, you know, that was the first club that, first of all, I won the league. Um, so it was, it was very memorable because there was a lot of years that I, I came second, came second, came second. I was so desperate to win and we finally did it with Chelsea. But I think, as I said, from 2012 onwards, I was at Chelsea from 2012 to 2018 for six years. And in that period, women's football really had a renaissance. So I felt like I was part of that renaissance with Chelsea, um, which it goes beyond football, to be honest. It was about building a family. It was about feeling like you you deserve to be professional footballers as women. Um, You know, there's like three or four players who are like literally my best mates. You know, football take football away they're, they're my very very good friends so I just had an incredible time um I think winning winning the the league in 2015 and the FA Cup was a then a foundation for them to go on to become the team they are now like pushing for Champions Leagues and stuff which I'm very proud of you know a lot of times people say oh do you get jealous when you see them winning without you and I'm like no I'm proud because I know I was part of starting that because the thing is, is that once you win, it's addictive. You want to keep winning, keep winning, keep winning, keep of winning. Keep winning. And you can't, you know, I knew I wasn't going to be at Chelsea forever, but I almost feel like I sort of planted that seed. I was part of planting that seed deep in the soil and now the, 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 the tree's right there for everyone to see. That's how I feel about Chelsea. And I guess then sort of later on in your career, then you went, and did an incredible move to Juventus, which yeah. I guess was 
very different. And this is one of the things I've always admired about you is the fact that you're not scared to to switch it up and make changes. You know, right. you went to an entirely new country where, you know, although the love of the game, I guess that's one of the things actually, because although you're in a different country where you don't speak English, you still speak the same language in terms of football. And, you know, you you are all able to sort of, it's a universal love of the game that you share. What was that like for you then at Juventus? Yeah, it's a great question because to be honest, like I wanted to retire at Chelsea. That was not my dream. And 2018, I'd just turned 30. Um, but obviously the modern game, I was planning to sort of play for another two, three years. But football's quite ageist. You know, when, once you hit 30, you're seen as a depreciating asset which is wrong, really. And I think because a lot of players have defied that, whether it's Jamie Vardy, whether it's Ronaldo, whether it's Messi, they kind of defy that whole age thing. But the reality was when I hit 30, I could feel that the club were a bit reluctant to kind of renew my contract. And I wasn't playing as much as I used to. And Chelsea's evolution was to attract more and more world-class players. So um, I felt that I wasn't really part of the future plans. Um which at the time was hurtful, but then I've got over it because I think that's part of evolution of football anyway. Um, so I don't want to sit here and be like, oh, you know, I stepped out of my comfort zone willingly. I almost felt like I had to. I had to decide, okay, I'm not probably not going to do what I want and re retire at Chelsea. Um, so let me do something I've never done before rather than play for another English team, which I think would have been hard anyway against Chelsea anyway. So I was like, right, I've never played in Europe. I played in America for three years. Um, and obviously because of playing in the Champions League, I'd already been exposed to European football and, and always enjoyed it. So I was like, okay, let me, let me try Europe. Originally, I wanted to go to PSG. Um, I don't know whether it was Paris and it was close to London. I was like, oh, this will be, this will be dope. And PSG obviously is a massive global club. But PSG were very flaky. They kind of said yes and then no. And then I flew to Paris, had a meeting, and then they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they pulled out and said no. So I was like, you know, forget this. I'm, you lot aren't serious. Juventus had come in for me the week, the, sorry, the year before I left Chelsea. And I said no. So I went back to Juventus and I was like, look, you know, I'm happy to pick up the conversation again. Juventus was a new women's team. They'd only just launched in 2018. So sorry, 2017. So it was it was a project that, again, I wanted to be part of trying to build it. I'm, I'm kind of attracted to those kind of projects where I'm, I'm part of building something. But obviously Juventus is a, you know, is a global club. So that was attractive to me. Um, ended up obviously agreeing to go. And the timing was perfect because I signed a day before Ronaldo. So when I got there, it was like, wow, this is the biggest club in the world. It was like a free, it was like a frenzy. It was media everywhere. Um, and I was a bit like, all right, is this for me? <laughs> but, but they were like, no, it's not for you. It's for Ronaldo. <laughs> Relax. Um, so uh, it was just, it was just amazing, really. Um, and I remember my first day I turned up and we had to do medicals. So you, you have to kind of get all your, your medicals tested. And honestly, Zach, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. Had to run on a treadmill, like with mask on, with like this big, 
like VO2 mask on, had to strip, had wires everywhere. And I just remember thinking, what have I done? Like, this is, this is not, this is not about what I'm doing. Um, so got through that. And then I think my, my mentality towards just learning was what helped me a lot. Italian culture is very proud. It's very, um, yeah, it's very proud. So they want to see that you're trying to speak Italian, even though they can speak English, right? So I came with an approach of, okay, let me try to speak Italian. Let me learn. I paid for classes, I paid for lessons. Um, so it was a great experience. I traveled around Italy. I saw the country. Um, and then we won. We, we won pretty much everything there was to win. So really, really grateful for that experience. And I guess part of the reason why they were able to win was thanks to your, well, the whole team contribution, but to you yeah. as well. Um, and I think that uh, you were given an award as well for your contributions that season as well. I mean, it was incredible yeah. what you were able to do. And, and like you say, you know, it's about being uncomfortable and not, right. you know, you've got to be able to adapt and change and develop and grow. But you were really like, that was a big move for you to make. Big you know? move you could have easily gone and, and done something yeah. at another club. Within. It was a big life move. It was a big life move more than anything. I just bought a house in London in 2017, not far from Cobham. Cause as I said, I was, I was ready to retire at Chelsea. So I just bought a house. I was leaving my house behind. Um, I, but like I said, I think finishing top score in my first year, winning that award was because I, I didn't go with a cocky attitude of, I've, I've been at Chelsea six years, like, you're a new thing, like, you're a new team, like, you know, this, you, you should respect me. I didn't really go with that attitude. I went with the attitude of, like, let me learn more. Um, so when they said to me, listen, I think you can be fitter, I was like, okay, cool, let's, I'll get fitter then. When they said to me, listen, all the meetings are going to be in Italian, so you better try and understand fast, I wasn't complaining I was like, okay, let me sit next to an Italian person who speaks a little bit of English so she can translate. But after a while, I can understand and pick up some of the things he's saying. And then obviously on the pitch, I just worked at my craft and I didn't have any friends outside of football. So I was like, right, I might as well, you know, I might as well give it my all here. So I think that was, and that's a message I always like to send to people, like just have an attitude of learning, good or bad. Sometimes you can learn from the worst experiences, <laughs> And sometimes you can, but just if you have an attitude of like, how much can I grow from this and learn from this? It, you always kind of benefit from that. Um, whereas there was another English player who I don't think had that attitude and she struggled. Yeah. You know, she struggled because it was constant complaining, constant negativity, because it wasn't easy, but it wasn't easy for me either. But that was the point. If it was going to be easy, I would have stayed in my house in London. Uh, yeah, of course. And I think, you know, even when you look at your incredible playing career for England, you know, representing your country, you're not necessarily always going to be in situations that are the most comfortable or where it's going right. to be easy. Um, and we'll move on to that topic a little bit later on, you know, when it comes to sort of the racism and everything else that you have to deal with, you know, that is yeah. quite predominant within the world of football, um, you yeah. know, having to sort of, try and figure out a way to navigate this game that you love so dearly and feel mm. comfortable in it whilst also at the same time trying to consistently adjust and feel more comfortable you know there's there's constant barriers that you're 
meeting along the way that you've almost got to to jump over in order to to to, to succeed and and to win because you know at the end of the day your your success is measured by how many goals you manage to score you know it's not a case that you're remembered by you know oh you were a great person or oh you made great contributions to the team it's like no how many goals did you score like that's what they want you know um so yeah I mean once you then retired what was that like for you to 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 make that decision to retire um so after so after the first year at Juventus um it was cool I had fun we won the league we won the Coppa Italia I won player um I won uh high scorer and then obviously I wanted to stay I signed a two-year deal anyway and then the second season was a little bit different um I lived in this kind of beautiful um converted church building in the middle of Turin Turin is not my type of city I'll say that it's it was quite boring um I'm a I'm a city girl I like to have diversity and and lots of things going on and see different types of people but Turin for me was quite a stagnant place everything revolved around the Juventus and obviously for me that was work so I found I, the city started to grate on me a little bit. And then in terms of just the social, where the society was at, I felt like it was quite backwards in, in t- at times. I'd go into convenience stores and they'd, you'd feel a sense of, you know, who she, if I was, and then I started just wearing Juventus kit out everywhere. Cause I knew that the badge was almost like my, my protection. Like if they knew I, I, I played for Juventus or worked for Juventus, they wouldn't treat me like a prostitute off the street. So that, that becomes quite hard for your mental after a while, uh-huh. particularly when like the first year kind of mission accomplished, those things started to happen. Um, there was a few times I'd be at the airport and they'd bring like sniffer dogs to like sniff like my one little handbag that I'd come like, and I'd just be like, why is this happening? You know? And look, that happens to everyone, but they knew I was a I was a footballer, so it was kind of like mm, I just I didn't feel I started to feel quite uncomfortable in my environment, and then I started to travel to other cities in 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 Italy just to kind of get away. So the signs were kind of telling me, okay, any like it's time to maybe come home. So I was getting quite homesick anyway, um, and then I was like, okay, then you start kind of mapping out your succession plan. I'm 33 at this point, so. A lot of players, 33, 34, already start thinking, how much longer am I going to play or am I going to retire? That's like a a, a basic thought process when you hit 34. Because as I said, football is quite ages. It makes you feel like that anyway. So I was already 33. I was homesick. I'd done what I needed to do in Italy anyway. And then I was like, okay, do I really want to go back home? I'm not going to play for Chelsea, Arsenal, Man City because those days are done. Do I really want to go play for a sort of a, for want of a better phrase, a lesser team, get frustrated. Like, I don't want to do that. So then it was like, okay, cool. Like, I'll, I'll finish at the top of the mountain in Italy. Like, I'm okay with that too. Um, and then I got the Villa offer. So that was kind of my, okay, like, this is, t- it really is time. You know, God kind of just sent that. And then I was like, right, okay, that's my next, that's my exit route. 
Um, so that's kind of how it happened in terms um, of like retiring. It kind of happened six months before I retired. Yeah. And you've got that progression naturally as opposed to it feeling like it was a, a yeah. move. Yeah. You don't just wake up unless it's injury related. You don't just wake up and retire. You've been thinking about it for a long time. And I always say, because a lot of footballers struggle with this, like this is a whole different, this is a whole nother podcast if you want to do it. But a lot of footballers struggle with um, just identity issues coming out of football. Because for your whole life, you've played football, you've been clapped up. For men's players in particular, they've been clapped up by thousands and thousands of people every week. If that is your sense of identity and validation, what happens when that stops? And I guess especially so, when, when you're starting as early as you are in the game, you know, start, or, yeah, exactly. seven or eight, exactly. you know, you're in the academy or whatever, and that's exactly. all you sort of know. So what happens is it's, it's extreme emotion. So you go, I want to divorce this game. I don't want anything to do with it again, which is never healthy because you can't just turn off your passion that you've had since you were five years old. Some people go, I'll keep playing until literally I'm wheeled off the pitch. That's not good either because they start to feel like they're not really being respected. Some people stay in the game, and I think that's the best way to go because you're still burnt, you're still fueling that little fire that I mentioned earlier. So I knew that as long as I'm prepared for what I'm going to do and I stay in football, I'm going to be okay. Um, but you really have to think about it, you have to map it out. You know, a lot of footballers don't map it out. And it's too late. It gets, it becomes too late. A lot, even male footballers, you know, people say, well, yeah, but they have so much money and they don't need to work a day in their life. But yeah, but for the whole, your whole life, you've had a purpose, you've had an objective, you've had some, so you can be a multimillionaire, but you still want to get up and do something. It's about having that sense of um, purpose in the mornings, you know, something that you get up for and, and that you're passionate about, you know? The other thing is, is, is like, in a way, a lot of footballers are institutionalized. So your whole life, you've been told when to eat breakfast, when to train, when not to train, when to do gym, what to eat, when to sleep, when to travel. And so you, you're used to regimentation, you're used to kind of structure. When that stops, okay, now what do, now who's to, what, what do I do now? So a lot of footballers struggle with that too. And I've always been a person that likes variety um, anyway. So, you know, I like to do different things. And so I always, I always encourage people to try and have different interest points that feed different energies in your life. If you're only staying in one lane, that's your work, that's your family, that's your, it's a little bit unhealthy because if that stops, what, who are you then? Do you think that's why so many um, male players when they retire begin to kind of struggle when it comes to their mental health or sort of finding a purpose or, or something to yeah. do? It's because that all they ever know just stops. And, and it's almost as yeah. if I suppose when football becomes your life and your life is football, once it's gone, if you don't have anything exactly. else, then you don't have a life, essentially. Exactly. And that's why footballers, whilst you're playing set up like do whatever like whether it's a podcast whether it's a fashion line whether it's property something that's going to give you a, another sense of identity you know I I call it hyphenated like be multi-dimensional do different things because whether you're Ronaldo or someone who's playing in non-league 
if your whole life is football, it will stop one day. <laughs> you know, so I, I'm really passionate about it because I think that that's where, I, thankfully, I was able to kind of set up my career post-football. And honestly, Zach, people say to me, oh, do you miss football? And I'm like, I haven't had time to miss it. I've, I just, I've done so many different things that's opened the door for me because I've retired and I'm not in this kind of regimented lifestyle anymore. I'm so grateful for football because it's opened all of the doors in my life, but I'm not pining for my, for, for playing because I'm doing other things that are feeding that fire. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. I completely agree that, you know, it's important just to be looking forward. And I guess in, in yeah. a sense of sort of all the things that you've done, you've done a law degree which I guess is sort of the biggest thing that's like wow you know for a footballer to play the game succeed on that side of things you know all your other accolades and achievements are you know speak for themselves but to go and decide that you wanted to do a law degree is just I mean I guess when did you decide that that was something that you wanted to pursue and, and, and do and how did you go about doing it was it difficult for you to, to do in the yeah. process of playing the game as well what was that like well I've always been like when I was young um maybe like 10 or 11 I was fascinated with world leaders I'd read a lot um I always think like wow I used to read a lot when I was younger and I don't read that much anymore I'm trying to read more but I used to read a lot. Um, my writing was very good. I was always someone that spoke up for other people. So I think there was always a lawyer in me because lawyers are very good at reading, very good at writing, very good at representing other people. And then I did To Kill a Mockingbird at GCSE and the lead character is a lawyer called Atticus Finch. So that I was obsessed with that film. And so I was like, this is, you know, this is exactly what I want. I want to, I want to kind of become. Football at the time was kind of just a parallel moving train, but there was no sort of like career path where I could go like, okay, I want to do that. It was just kind of like a hobby that I was doing twice a week very well, playing for England like once a month, but I couldn't really call it a career. And you know, I'm Nigerian, Zach, so it just doesn't work. You know, you will have parents, your parents say, at some point, what are you doing with your education? That is, that will be a conversation. Because they have, my mother did biochemistry. My father is a politician. So they're not gonna see their kids just kind of not know what they're doing with their education. My mom always let me play football, but because there was no sort of identifiable career path, she, she really sort of made it a non-negotiable to decide what to do at uni. So. I loved law anyway from To Kill a Mockingbird and I, I, I wanted to do something that was challenging and had a professional aspect to it. So I chose law, went to Brunel, loved it, really, really enjoyed it. Um, and then, yeah, went into, went into legal training and was working sort of part-time as a lawyer, part-time as a footballer um, after the Olympics. And then bang, Chelsea gave me a pro contract. And then I was like, right, I can be a lawyer when I'm 60. See you later, law. I'm focusing on football finally for the first time in my life. That's incredible. It, that's just, it goes to show that you can sort of do both, albeit, you know, yeah. one more than another, but you were able to make it work and, you know, put your passion and, and focus into something else outside of the game. Do you think that that also helped keep you sane? 100%, 100%. I think it's really, 
it's actually one of my mantras now where it's like whatever you do you need to have a different energy source so often when I would when I would have a bad day at training for example the part of my brain that is kind of the the, the chemicals from from training would be switched off because I'd be reading and doing something in relation to law and so it would just it was just like a switching off and on all the time which was really healthy because sometimes we become consumed by one thing whereas if you have def- different energy points I think you're able to switch off parts of your brain that might be too stressful at a certain point so whether it's reading whether it's writing whether it's yoga whatever it may be find that like I always say to people find running is really good find that different energy source and make sure it's something that you like you know um so I do think it's really really important to do maybe not multiple things but just have different passion points and energy points that you can you can have alongside work yeah when um when I guess you decided that you were going to retire your book sort of then you know became your main focus as that was brought into fruition which again was the kind of time that we then crossed paths um, and I was able to help you with with that launch Um, I guess for for people who haven't had a chance to read your book which is an incredible book I know it's had numerous uh, accolades and um you know, been celebrated in, in multiple categories and up for awards and all of these different types of things, which is incredible. Um, what do you think that is a driving force that then means that it was the right time for you to decide to, to, to write a book? Honestly, Zach, like I got approached to write a book in 2017 after the whole um, FA case that I had, which was a very dark time in my life. Um, so I kind of was, was anti-book to start off with. I felt like people were trying to capitalize on and monetize my pain, really <laughs> monetize a really quite difficult time in my life. So originally it, it, I rejected, I think two offers to write a book because I just f- didn't feel like they were coming from the right place, but indirectly they actually planted a seed because I was like, okay. I'm going to write a book. If I'm going to write a book, I'm going to do it my way. And I'm going to do it with a publisher that actually believes in my entire story, not just one part of my story. So it kind of set me down the road along with my agent, Misha, who's, you know, he's a friend first and foremost, but an incredible agent. Um, we, we, we had a discussion around, you know, who to approach to kind of have that holistic um, a, a holistic approach to my book with that obviously chapter is a very important lesson but not dominating my whole entire life um, so then we, we we spoke to Penguin who have an imprint called Vintage and they were very very keen to tell the full story tell my full story give me creative control um, let me find a writer that would that would first of all, wasn't a sports writer, but just a brilliant writer who, who had already written a book about um, a Syrian refugee who became an Olympian. So they gave me a lot of creative control to kind of find how I wanted to write it my own way. 
and then we started the process I was writing my book whilst I was in Italy actually um which was about 18 months and um yeah they don't teach this was created and I knew I wanted to write something that had not just my voice but had the voice of others as well that kind of spoke to the voice of others in terms of lessons so when you feel like you're reading it you feel like okay you're reading any story but then I'm reading a lesson that I can apply to myself um so everything from structure to to tone to the stories to the chapters there's a nine chapters I wore number nine um the first chapter is called heaven's number nine that speaks a lot to my faith you know everything was me it was all my idea so I'm very grateful to them for giving me so much creative control for my first book but I, I, but I wasn't going to do it to be put it this way I wasn't going to do a book if I didn't have it if I didn't yeah. have that kind of control yeah I guess you're quite fortunate in the sense that you were in control of your own narrative for essentially that was kind of the first time you know in your career that you were able to to have full control of your own narrative finally you know it wasn't a case of the way that you were being portrayed or the media was seeing it it was it was you um and I guess it also ties in quite nicely because I guess the the slogan for the book is um lessons in the in the game of life or something yeah exactly so you know you've you've got this beautiful story and journey that you you take people on but it's more than just a book about you I I think at least for me you're able to it's almost like um it's like a guide or like a, a mini bible in a way because it gives you a sense of flavor as to how you are able to um apply yourself in different scenarios or situations um, based on your own experiences, which is, I think, a, a very different type of book than something that we see very often nowadays, especially. Yeah, I just, I kind of, you know, I've read sports autobiographies before, and with all due respect, I think they're very predictable. It's kind of like, well, you know, I scored this amazing goal in 2005, and since then I scored another amazing goal, and since then I scored another amazing goal. <laughs> like, it's not, you know, there's no depth. Um, I wanted to be really open and vulnerable and talk about like my my challenges my failures like a lot of footballers kind of edit that out and we, we sort of learn how to give very kind of media trained versions of our life but it's not the reality so I really wanted people to understand the issues of 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 failure success friendship jealousy you know identity racism being a woman sexism all of that through the eyes of me as a footballer but you can relate to it whether you're a footballer or not a lot of sports autobiographies you can only really enjoy it if you know football but people can pick up my book you don't need to know football maybe there's there's a there's there's a few technical descriptions that you you know you'd need to like football but honestly you don't need to like football to read my book because it's about life through the eyes of a footballer yeah and the way that it was responded to you know and and the feedback that you got from people and you know I even see it sometimes still now um you know messages you get from people who are just sort of saying what an incredible book it is you know that's something that a lot of people aren't able to get like two years after the books come out to have people still saying like this is an incredible project that you've done. So I guess on the daily, you're probably still having that um, 
you know sense of achievement that you've put your 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 yourself into something which has just been an, a success and is still a success yeah I mean I remember saying to my to, to, to Misha my agent like listen when once a book is out that's it you can't reverse that and there's something beautiful about that because the longevity the the legacy that comes from that is is you know is forever so the fact that people can still appreciate um my book you know many many months and years after it was published honestly touches me deeply sometimes I get messages and they literally make my week like I'll be having a bad day and I'll get someone post on Instagram that they're reading my book and I'm just like oh I'm just break I'm just like wow you know because that's my life like that's that was I got to a very vulnerable place to to it was like therapy writing the book so for someone to 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 repost it support it say wow that really resonate with me underlining paragraphs and it means a lot it really does it means a lot what do you think for you has been because I suppose we talk about the highlights that you've sort of experienced in your life. Yeah. What have been the, the, the moments that have been more difficult to deal with or points where you've sort of, I, I won't call it a breakdown because I think that often a breakdown leads to a breakthrough, but those yeah. sort of points that have then led to you becoming a better person that you've either learned from or that you've struggled to, to deal with that have then benefited you in the long run because they've taught you something. Yeah, I think for a long time, um, as female footballers, we we a lot of players struggled with self-esteem issues because society never really accepted us. Um, so you kind of become this defensive version of yourself, like always something to prove, and um, you know you know not being necessarily confident in who you are as a female footballer and as a woman so I I struggled with that quite a lot um, in terms of just finding my feet and it was only when I got to uni and I met other people who didn't play football who were just confident full of life I was like why you know why am I why do I question myself why am I so like you know defensive over certain things about who I am um, so that was always, that, that was challenging. That took a while. It took a while for me to get over. And then, you know, I think as an England player, you know, when I first got called up for England, I was very proud. Um, very, very proud. It's a proud moment, but I was always acutely aware that my name's Eniola Luco, like that ain't English. And as I said to you earlier, I hadn't really explored my Nigerian side at this point. So I just, I wanted to just desperately be in the England team and be considered as English and as, as anyone else, but I was never going to be. So when I got older and I realized that, oh, okay, in your success, you're English, in your failure, you're Nigerian, which I think other players have spoken about as well. Then it's the dark side of the media and the fact that they're always trying to trip you up and they play on stereotypes and, you know, the amount of times I've been called angry and aggressive and because they know what buttons they're pushing with that. So those are things Zach, that just, it's really, really hard because you just want to kind of get on with it. Um, 
but those are always really challenging those are always things you just think oh this I don't want to be dealing with this or I know what's going on and then people gaslight you to say no that's not what's going on but you know what's going on and so those are always been challenges and then obviously just failure just failing and feeling like I've let people down you know I went through a period at Chelsea where I was just so anxious to win that it was becoming too intense so I think a lot of my friends now from Chelsea they're my mates so they tell me that they're like you were sometimes too intense you know any like you know just shouting and just wanting to win and like we all wanted to win but it's the way you go about it and so sometimes I think I crossed the line too much because I was quite intense. Um, I didn't want to fail. And ultimately, I've realized that failure can be the best thing to lead to success anyway. So there's lots, there's lots, there's lots that I found really, really challenging through my life, to be honest. And being able but to I've now went, that passion. Yeah, chale- yeah, challenging passion in a way that serves you um, and doesn't kind of work against you um but I think the secret to life is is first of all having self getting to a place of serious self-validation where no one can really try to tell you who you are because you know who you are already people try to box you all the time so it's being able to say no a starting point every morning I'm with myself every morning brushing my teeth alone So I'm going to start off my day talking to myself and telling myself I'm worthy, telling myself I'm God's child, telling myself my parents love me. Like that positive self-talk is something I've practiced because your whole life as a footballer, you're trying to please the coach, trying to please the fans, trying to please media, trying to always trying to please other people. But ultimately they don't know who you are anyway. So I've got to a place where I don't really, I don't care. We all care what people think, but I think the degree to how much we put em- emphasis on it is the, is the key. So that's helped me a lot. One of my friends messaged me, um, I think it was last week or the week before. And he said to me, one of the things that you'll notice is that the successes that you go through in life, you have people singing your praises and everything, but, when times are tough they won't be anywhere to be seen and that support and that love that you have is very fickle and I think it's the same in football you know when you're winning you're you're the favorite you know you're the media's favorite and you're the fan favorite but the second that something you know happens that you know oh you missed a a penalty or you didn't score or you know you're you're not playing on top form for a couple of weeks you know the media can just change on you and I guess the whole um narrative behind that can just switch you know that is fickle as well the support that you have from the fans do you think that through this sort of journey that you've gone on in terms of finding that self-love it's then enabled you to sort of not be immune from it because I guess everyone suffers from it to a certain extent yeah but do you think that it's enabled you to be stronger in those situations 100 percent 100% people can't really get to you to your core if you if you really practice self-love and self-love is not an arrogant thing self-love is a foundational thing of like mm, you're not really gonna tell me that I'm not very good 
if I know I'm fundamentally um, I, I am good or not really going to tell me that I'm all of these stereotypes that are negative when I know I'm not. But you, you can only really reject those labels if you know who you are. A lot of people don't know who they are. They don't spend enough time with themselves. Like, think- I've always been... I've always been someone that's around people, obviously, because I've been part of teams since I was five years old, but I really enjoy my own company. And within that time, I'm on my own. I'm talking to myself. I'm thinking of thinking of things. I'm thinking, oh, how could I handle that better? I'm thinking, okay, should I solve that issue with that person? Should I apologize? Like, I, I just don't think people spe- spend time with themselves enough. So people get to say who they are and people get to kind of decide, you know, how people what box to put people in. And often the people that are trying to decide what box to put you in don't even know what box they're in. They're not happy with themselves. When you meet, when you meet someone who's very comfortable with who they are, it's always gonna be a positive experience. But a lot of people just deflect and project and all of their nonsense. And then you take that on as truth. And it just becomes a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy and, and vicious cycle so I think all of our answers are within us so I I definitely would send that message out that like start it all starts with you fundamentally I think that leads quite nicely on to my next point was I guess is around social media Um, a brilliant tool that we used to connect in the beginning of course um, and has so many great benefits when it comes to networking and business and all of these other things but on the flip side when you're in the public eye it can be quite a difficult um, platform to have Um, as you know for quite some time I've been campaigning and talking with members of the government to try and change the rules around the way that social media operates and anonymous accounts and all of this kind of thing Um, Do you think that for footballers, um, especially as we've seen in recent weeks, it's extremely difficult for you to sort of live your life, go on social media and and deal with that whole sort of abuse that you get on a weekly, depending on how your performance is? Do you think that it's now becoming more of a, um, a struggle? I mean, I think I think it's always been a struggle in terms of the abuse that people get on social media, especially if you've got a blue tick, especially if you're somebody who uh, people feel that they have a right to um, criticise. Um, social media has given everybody a voice, um, which is dangerous. Everybody's entitled to their voice, but it's given hatred a voice. It's given every single ism a voice. Whereas those things without social media weren't loud. You'd, you'd find them on the street and the person gets arrested. <laughs> like, now it's become totally normal. Like, I see footballers all the time like, yeah, but it's normal that I'm racially abused every week. It's not normal, but it's normalized it. So I just think that like we have to be realistic and be like, look, if you want to be on the platform, I would like to be at the point, and we said this before the part, I'd like to be at the point in five years time where I'm barely on, not even five, maybe two, barely on these things anyway. But I think, as you said, they work very well for business and branding and all that kind of stuff and connecting with globally. But I think the reality is if you want to be on social media platforms, you just have to be very good at controlling what you see and what you don't see and controlling your intake, just like 
as a footballer, you control your diet, you control your training. Like my social media diet is strict. Like, and I think you're the one that taught me actually, like I'm not on social media. Like my phone checks me out if I'm on social media more than two hours a day. Um, Instagram is always a positive experience for me because you can't comment on my posts unless you follow me. If you follow me and you comment on my post negatively, then you really are a freak and I block you anyway. Like I control it. Twitter, unfortunately, doesn't have that ability to control who can reply, who doesn't. But often I I go in and out of privatizing my account. I go in and out of protecting my tweets. I block people. Like I treat it how I would treat anyone on the street, like, you know, or my house. Like you can't just come into my house and, and start talking nonsense. Like you have to get through the door first. You have to ring the bell. Yeah. And there's got to be some level of um, respect as well that people have to show. And I think that people often think oh, because fun. you're, you know, you're someone in the public eye or you're someone who's got a platform that, you know, they can talk to you however. And, you know, oh. It's like, oh, there's no one at the end of this account, so we don't need to worry about feelings yeah, or emotions. It's faceless. It's faceless. It's faceless. I, the amount of times, the amount of times I've had someone say to me, "Oh, you seem so different on on Instagram than on Twitter," and I'm like, "No, I'm pretty sure I'm the same person and saying the same thing, but your perception changes because Twitter's a toxic platform, much more toxic platform than Instagram." So people go onto these platforms with a certain agenda, with a certain spirit, because they view people differently. It's very difficult to go on some a positive picture of someone on Instagram and say something hateful, unless you really are a hateful person. On Twitter, it's almost easy because it's just so faceless. And then people wanna say the most extreme things just to be heard and retweeted. Um, or whilst Twitter pretends to be just, you know, just the, the, I think the analogy was Twitter's just the Royal Mail, but it's like, it's rubbish because they managed to take off, they managed to block Donald Trump when it was convenient to do so. I mean, when when America start, all of a sudden became Democrat, all of a sudden Donald Trump was taken off Twitter. So if Twitter can take off someone like Donald Trump, they can definitely stop, you know, a lot of this hateful stuff but I think the answer is to just control your intake like you would control any other diet yeah it's it is essentially part of your diet and um you know I've spoken to many people I do remember speaking to yourself about you know the limitations to put on your phone and all of these kind yeah. of things because yeah you did if I got you, it for you definitely if you don't, you know, it can essentially just run, run rings around you, you know, before you know it, you're spending like 13 hours on your phone, just sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, shit, like I haven't actually done anything with my day because I've just been so consumed in, in, in content, but for what, you know, what have I got to, to show for all this time I've spent? Um, you know, when it comes to certain platforms, do you also feel like a lot of things that you, can say not you as a person but just people in your profession where you're in the public eye where things can be taken out of context or people are just sort of waiting to find something to um bite at you and and say like oh and take that out of context and and run with it or you know like I remember um last year with comments around furlough and and you know yes there was sort of very 
clever and points that you were making that people just weren't ready to listen to. And we look forward even sort of three or four or five months later down the line, everyone was more or less saying what you were saying at the time. And, yeah. you know, you had to kind of come out and, and apologize for what you said, but you know, yeah. is, is it a sense that we should have to apologize for what we say when, well, yeah. you know, what we say is, is, it's true not, you know exactly because like you said everyone's entitled to their own voice good or bad but I apologize I think as I think as people in the public eye we do have probably more of a responsibility to be careful what we say because so many people so many people hold us in high regard as role models but people take that the wrong way and think that you then have to kind of be colonized and you can only say what everybody wants you to say but no, I'm, I'm saying what I feel is right and is my opinion. And provided that's not offensive, I have a right to say it as much as anyone else. Um, now, the whole furlough thing, like, I mean, it, it, was, it was a sensitive time. You know, it was the beginning of the pandemic. Everybody was stressed out. Everybody was like, what's going on? You know, I saw, funny enough, I was triggered by another tweet that I saw somebody pretty much bragging that they were cheating the system, cheating the furlough system, being paid effectively more than the, what they would get if they weren't on furlough. So I was like, "Raw, this person's capitalizing from a pandemic. Like that's, that's pretty dark. So as you do, I then tweeted like some people, you know, you never like at the person. So I was like, some people um, are, and this was at the point when the furlough was extended to October. So I was like, I'm paraphrasing now, but basically some people are, you know, are really happy with this extension and it's going to, it's going to create this sort of do nothing entitlement culture. And a lot of people didn't want to go back to work essentially. Yeah. So I was basically challenging what I think is a culture of, I dis I'm entitled to for the government to support me, but don't make me do anything. And then on top of that, I'm going to now actually exploit the system. Now, people also don't understand that I have a I have a much broader perspective than just the UK. I'm from I travel to Africa every year. Like I am a global citizen, like I love traveling. So when I'm tweeting often I tweet from more of a perspective than the UK but people are so close-minded people are so small-minded that they only think about UK so from my perspective furlough was a privilege because relatives in Nigeria are having to risk their lives COVID in Nigeria too are having to risk their lives every day go to work they don't have a choice about furlough or not that was my perspective so I just got a barrage of waves of like this is a terrible take how dare you da, 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 da. and essentially I I apologize for the offense caused because it was not my intention to offend anybody so I always think like if something was not your intention it's quite an easy apology to make to be honest so I apologize for the offense caused. I was like look I don't want to add to anyone's stress right now I was just giving my view on the economic state of furlough, which actually I think is a good thing. Um, that's the other thing. 
apologizing quickly disarms a lot of people. So I apologized, I think within 24 hours, disarm the press, disarm the media, because now you've got to write about the fact I apologized. So that was that, but then I'm now seen as, ah, oh, the girl that said something about furlough. So now anything I say is highly controversial. If I say the sky is blue, people tweet me and say, how dare you, the sky is red. That's what happens with Twitter. So that was a really, that was a really challenging period because I'd also just started my job at Villa. So it was like, I was getting abuse from Villa fans. Get out of our club. You're not welcome here. You know, it, was, it was tough. It was tough. Um, but, you know, my opinion's my opinion. And at the end of the day, as you said, I think it was evident that people, when, they, when it was time to go back to work, I think in the in sort of August, September, I believe, people didn't really want to go back to work. And that's okay, that's your choice, but don't pretend as if it's because of the pandemic. It's because you have a choice of staying at home and um, you know, and and being on furlough, which is totally fine. It's totally fine. But I read about companies who um had to make people redundant because they refused to come off furlough. So really what I was saying was correct. It was just, I was saying it may be a, a, too much of a sensitive time. So uh, yeah, lessons learned with that, definitely. I'm, I'm, I'm probably a lot more kind of like, I don't really need to say this because I know I'm going to get heat from it. Um, but sometimes I say it anyway. I'm like, I said what I said, up to you guys, what you want to do with that and end up blocking people and privatizing my tweets because ultimately... You know, if you if you your only response to to an opinion that's not offensive is is offensive stuff, it really says more about you. You know. No, of course. Moving forward, um, I guess still under the same bracket with the with the pandemic going on, we then had the whole uh, George Floyd Black Lives Matter um, come yeah. along, and and that was sort of a, a big thing, which then sort of captivated um and brought a, a big spotlight of attention on to issues that we knew had been going on for quite a long time um within you know certain aspects of life um what do you think that that whole period taught you i i mean i don't think it taught us anything as, as black people you know yeah, it was sort of stuff that we already knew and, and that we yeah. deal with. But what do you think it highlighted for you specifically during that time? Well, wow, that's a layered question. I think it, I think it highlighted um, just how tragic the American system is um, in terms of police brutality um, and just the, the, the sort of routine killing of black people. Um, or set of, yeah, a routine killing of young black people in comparison to the UK. I think often I, I always start from a place of gratitude. So I remember thinking like, wow, I've lived in America, I've lived in Italy. I'm so grateful that I'm in the UK for all its, you know, British institutional issues and colonization and all that stuff. Britain's not perfect, but I don't think I, I, as a black person in England, I feel like I can roam the streets without fear of my life. So I think it taught a lot of the world, the, the, the sheer brutality 
of the US system, obviously with Donald Trump kind of endorsing that too. But I think, I think what happened is people, everybody, whether you're black, white, brown, saw what racism really looks like. Right in front of their faces, a man killed like a dog in the street. And I think it really, it really touched the humanity of who we are as people, regardless of race. You know, if you're black, you shouldn't feel more angry about it because you're black. You should feel angry about it full stop as a human being. So I think that's what the George Floyd murder did. I think people were like, nah, this is, this is now like blatantly in front of our face. Because I think for a long time, people gaslight, people try and pretend that racism is not as big an issue as it is. People have found a way of making black people feel like they shouldn't call out racism because they're using the race card and it's a crutch. So there's been a masking of, of the reality for a long time. But I think the reality was there in front of you. And then if you remember shortly before, I think I can't remember if it was before after that video came out of that Karen in the park with that black man who actually ironically went to Harvard. Um, and I think that those two incidents came in very short, quick succession. So there was a lot of conversation, which I thought was amazing between all different races around race and racism and how we treat each other regardless of, of where we come from like and, and that's that was the game changer for me being able to sit down with my white friends and be like genuinely now what do you think like don't be scared about what I think what do you think about this and have that conversation and see their their views like having a genuine conversation because and then I think allyship came from that a lot of sort of the allyship movement of like white people being comfortable talking about white guilt, racism, their fragility, their guilt. I think it's really healthy. I think it was a really healthy moment. The issue then came for me was that, okay, but what's gonna change as a result of this? Um, we don't wanna, we do, and it's, it's interesting, something I thought about when I was watching Bridgerton recently, I was obsessed with Bridgerton by the way. And like, we don't want to just be like good at talking about black uh, grief and, and, and negativity. Like we want to be talking about more positive things about the black community. So, you know, it, it's really important that we had conversations around racism, but also we're talking about who black people are like, do you know that we were kings and queens like centuries ago? Like black history didn't start from slavery. All of those things were coming out during that time and people were generally learning new stuff, buying more books, you know. Um, so there's good, and part, there's good and bad parts of it. The bad part for me was like activism just became posting a black square, which really annoyed me. Because I mean, if you think about the people that came before us, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Rosa Parks. Those people died to make a better world for, for, for us. They, didn't, they, they weren't about posting and like looking good and then cracking on with their lives. Whereas social media has kind of balanced out um, what activism is and, and what sort of speaking to change is. So there was good and part, bad parts for me, but ultimately I, I just, I wanna see, I just wanna see the whole movement move forward. 
do you think that do you think that it has though do you think that over the course of the of the year when you look at what happened and then we're like nearly a year on do you think that in terms of having these open conversations and, and and everything that's sort of going on do you think that we are moving in the right direction let's let's look at the world of football for example there's a uh, no one can argue that there's a lot of black footballers but then right. the higher up you go in terms of the um yeah you know the, the the system within football the fewer people that you see that look like the likes of you and me yeah i think i i think honestly um we have to be really realistic about who we're asking to solve our problems because racism in of itself is a social construct it, it's not something that's like genetic you know I finished top of my grad graduating class and it was like full of different people from different races so it's a lie that you know white uh, white people are better than black and black people are Indians a bit that's all a lie in in the first place but the reality is is that social that social construct has benefited people for a long, long time. So my question is, well, why are they gonna change it for you now? You're asking these people to change, to basically change their privilege that has been constructed for hundreds and hundreds of years to your benefit, but they have to be seen to change it. So what happens is you get performative action you get things that are seen to be changing, but not really changing underneath. So you get kneeling, you get badges, you get t-shirts, which is fine in terms of awareness. But a lot of those people who decide to make t-shirts and badges and, 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 and all of this stuff, they know what the change is, but they're not trying to change it. So the reason I say this is because for a long time, I think black people are searching for answers in the wrong place. The answer is with us. The answer is in our own community. The answer is in our own businesses, in our own property, in our own ownership, in our own platforms. I love being black. We're the most talented, creative, joyous uh, people in the world, which is why a lot of our culture is appropriated. But if we know that, we don't really capitalize on it. We spend more time trying to ask people to make a scene rather than just being seen, building our own tables. Do you think people like Beyonce and Jay-Z didn't face, like they did, but they were like, well, I'm just gonna build my table anyway. And when I build my table, you'll come to it anyway. Exactly. It's not about putting a, um, you know, trying to pull up a seat at someone else's table. It's about building your own table and going from there. And I remember having a conversation with you. It must've been, it must have been nearly a year ago. And I kind of said to you that like, there's so many um, problems that I feel like people are still trapped in nowadays of still being like um, conditioned to be like slaves because it's like, if, yeah. you're, if you're happy to, to, you know, get a load of money, you know, as a footballer, as a musician, as a whatever, and your first instance is, you know, let me not try and better my life by investing this money into things which I then own. It's a case of, oh, I want to buy a car. I want to buy a chain. I want to buy a watch. I want to buy nice clothes. I want to buy assets that just depreciate in value that aren't going to better my existence or anything. Um, you know, that's something that you see 
a lot of nowadays. And I said, I think I even said it to you. I said that the problem is now a lot of people are slaves still and don't realize that they're, they're still trapped in this circle because they're not free because they they haven't freed themselves. You know, they, the knowledge essentially is what frees you. The knowledge is the power. The knowledge is the, is that open to just move forward and to create a better life, not only for yourself, but those around you as well. Yeah, I mean, it, look, as you're talking, I'm thinking it, it's not always easy to just build your own table. You know, we talk a lot about racism, but in, in British society, there's also, also a lot of classism. And that, not, that doesn't necessarily relate to race. There's a lot of poor white people who are discriminated against as much as black people, for example. But whether you have one pound or 50 pound, the way you or 500, you know, however rich you are, the way you manage your money really can have an impact on your sense of self-worth and ownership. But I think often we, 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 we think we only, we can only exist in the social structures that have been created and that place us deliberately in certain hierarchies. You know, people say to me all the time, like, oh, you know, how is it being the only black person in the boardroom I'm like I don't really think about it because all I'm thinking about is I'm I want to be as good as possible at what I do I want to be a representation of black excellence so the next black girl sees that it's possible if I spend half the time worrying about the fact I'm different I'm not going to get anywhere so this whole idea of imposter syndrome and oh you know I'm not meant to be here and all that that's just you're limiting yourself the quicker we are more comfortable sitting, sitting around people in power who have been in power for hundreds and hundreds of years and aren't trying to, aren't trying to let, they're not trying to move for you. So you have to, you have to, you have to figure out how you're going to get that seat. But we're asking the people who created the system that we're trying to free from to help us. Like, and look, you will have, you always have good people within the system. You know, I was hired by the owner of, 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 of Aston Villa, CEO of Aston Villa, like he had a vision. He knew that, you know, hiring a, an educated, successful black woman from Birmingham was going to have a positive impact on one of the most diverse communities in the country. Like he knew that. That's a decision. That's a decision. And, and I will always appreciate that. But, you know, another CEO will have a different view on that because it's like oh that's a risk oh let me let me play it safe you know so I think that I think that these are all decisions that we have to make and we have to figure out that the answers are within us and the quicker we have self-determination we mobilize together we stop the division we stop the cancel culture we build each other up we will be we well we are unstoppable we are unstoppable already. And, and, and you see the, the ethnic minorities that tap into that, they saw. They saw because it's like, well, I'm proud of who I am. I'm not going to dwell on it. I'm, I'm going where I'm going. Yeah. You know? And I think the UK, the UK gets a bad rap, but I think the UK is one of the best countries in the world for ethnic minorities, immigrants to become... You know, people talk about America all the time, the, the, the land of dreams, but America has really dark 
systems in terms of race. I don't think UK has such that kind of relationship. So if you are an ethnic minority that comes to England and is entrepreneurial, wants you to can make world, it, you can make it. Like I'm not having any, and yes, there's racism and yes, I get that. But if you tap into that energy, you can make it. And the country's not trying to stop you. We've seen so many um, people come up and, and trailblazers, you know, from different communities. I remember looking and seeing, and I, I, I think I've even said it before, um, and it raised a few eyebrows of people. I said, you know, the problem is if you constantly have this, um, this sort of woe is me, the world's done me dirty, I feel so hard done by, you're not going to get anywhere. But when you look at the likes of... Uh, you know, the Pakistani community who kind of came here and, and built something for themselves. And now, you know, you know, so many people who have done so well for themselves. You look at the Jewish community who still to this day are kind of targeted in the same way that blacks are yeah. in, in terms of racism, but we're still able yeah. to go and, and build and, and, and do their own thing within their communities. It's all about having that I like to think of it as ability from within of yourself to be able to say, I want to do X and Y, and I need to network and build this around me to make it happen. A lot of, I think a lot of people and a lot of black people aren't ready to have that conversation yet. You know, they're still. Oh. Yeah. I, th I think it's really interesting because I think we also need to be really aware that black people is just too general a phrase. Do you know what I mean? Like, Black people, and that's what makes black people amazing, that we, we, we're all, and I just finished reading Akala's book, it's an incredible book. And he talks a lot about what blackness means, blackness means in different parts of the world. You can be black, but be mixed race in certain parts of the world because you've got a drop of black. You can be white and be mixed race in Africa because people call you white and you know they see you as lighter. So blackness in of itself, we have so many different types of blackness that there's racism within the race. But, so for example, I'm Nigerian. Most Nigerians I talk to are super forward thinking. So they're not trying to, listen, I'm trying to get the bag. So I don't have time to dwell on, you know, now, you know, I don't have time. It's that forward thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm getting to the top of the mountain, come what may. Other cultures are a bit more reserved. They're still black. You know, the Caribbean culture, they've got a different relationship with the UK because they came over as Wimbush. So I think we also need to understand as black people, those nuances and, and some, some, some black people are more there than others because they're from different cultures. You know, African-Americans obviously are gonna have a completely different experience with race because they're, the 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 products of a deep seated slave culture that then turned into a prison slave culture, you know. So I I've had to do a lot of learning about that as well in terms of just like, okay, it's easy for you any to say okay, build your own table, da da da. Because I come from a culture that has encouraged that since I was a kid. Other cultures may not be there, so that's where we need to help each other. You know, that's where we need to you know really understand who we are, mobilize, support. You know, you talk about the Jewish community. I'm a Christian, so I've always believed that the Jews were chosen people anyway. I worship a Jew, Jesus was Jewish. I literally worship a Jew. So for me, the Jews are incredible people because of what they've been through. I was reading Israel 
have already vaccinated their whole, pretty much the whole population. Israel, like think about that. You know, Israel are the size of Wales. And I don't think they're older than 60 years old and they're surrounded by enemies, you know? So we can do it like, and, and you know, some people may say the comparison is quite crude between Jews and blacks, but mm, it's still trauma. It's still, it's still adversity. It's still, like, it's what you do with it. Yeah. It's what you do with it that is so important. And I think that's where we need to kind of continue to think forward, think forward, think forward. Because as I said, you know, Black people are amazing. <laughs> amazing. Like, if you really think about it, if you really deep it, like, Black people can do anything. And actually, a lot of history has erased the amazing things that Black people have done. I was even thinking about this back when, um, when I remember when, when I was at school. Um, and, you know, it was almost as if it was like, black history was only taught within a month but the only history that you were learning was you were a slave and then you were free and then that was it you know it was like okay part one part two we're done you know now you know you're black you know you know what happened to you you know you were a slave and then you were let go and then you were you know and I when I think about that I always get upset because I think that was very that's the very deliberate thing to do and that's kind of like it's like brain manipulation you know and Hopefully that's all changing now with all the movements around kind of decolonizing the curriculum, but that, that's quite sinister, you know, and this is what I'm saying about these systems have been created for a reason. They've been, they've been created for you to not think that you're amazing, you know, to not think that you were a king or a queen, because that's, that's going to be unhelpful. You're not really meant to think like that. You're meant to be in a certain pecking order. So we've got to really reverse those things, read about ourselves, read about, our history like it's so empowering like reading Akala's book I was like yo black people are amazing <laughs> like I was so excited because I already kind of had that you know look I've got friends from all over the world you know I don't really care race you know I race doesn't our differences actually are something that I I'm attracted to so the more different you are the more I'm, I'm kind of like I really want to speak to you um but it's really important, I think, to really understand your whole history, as you said. Going forward, um, I think that's kind of like a nice way to wrap it up. Going forward, looking into um, the next sort of, I guess, five years for you, what do you think you're going to be doing or what do you see in the pipeline? Ah, well, you know, I think the word that keeps coming to my mind is ownership. Um, I want to, I really want to own platforms that are inspiring brands, you know, whether it's doing my own book and owning the whole creative process. I'd love to own a football club one day. Obviously, I'm directing one now. One day, I, I want to have as, mu as, as much money to to help build a football club and, and affect women's football from a high, even higher position than I am now. Um, I'd like to help more women get into the men's game in the professional men's game and maybe be one of them myself. Um, so that, that own a lot of, I want to own more property. So property I think is really, is a really, 
building generational wealth I'm really passionate about and being able to say I own land and I own property so I'm big on that and, and sort of trying to continue to develop my, in my own portfolio I feel very blessed to own my house and own other properties and again we go back to how you use your money you know you don't have to be a multimillionaire, but you can get there by just being savvy you know so definitely all of that and I think to be honest Zach I think since the pandemic I've really kind of connected with just the basic things that like make us happy you know working out feeling healthy chilling with the family spending time with good friends having conversations like this like just having more of that because I think as a footballer for a long time I was quite selfish I was quite like oh like you know I don't I don't want to go to that event or I don't need to do this or or you know I kind of just made decisions that didn't really think about other people so now you get all of that back when you retire and I really enjoy just kind of connecting with people a lot so just more of that really um nothing nothing too complicated <laughs> going um on to our last sort of point or question and I did sort of give you a bit of a, a head start you're gonna have a dinner party let's say post-covid six people oh. six yeah six well I'm hoping I'm one of them so <laughs> okay okay well you're definitely one of them because it's your podcast um and it's you know this is a I have to have dinner with interesting converse conversationalists so you're definitely one of them Beyonce's a dead cert um Shonda Rhimes I love she's a genius by the way absolute genius um if you look at the shows she's created I'd love to pick her brain about like you know all of the shows she's created and her creative process um I'd probably pick how many is that four no three um uh I really like David Beckham I think he's what he's done with his career like just made it more of a footballer more than just a footballer like and his philanthropy work um he's just he just seems like a really good-hearted guy Barack Obama um that's five last one I would say oh that's a tough one now oh Stephen Furtick Stephen Furtick, my favorite, my favorite Christian preacher. He is, he got me through the pandemic. Yeah, his stuff's very, very his hard messages. hitting. Oh, his messages. So he would open us up with prayer. We'd eat. He'd like, you know, we'd we'd finish with prayer, have a good conversation, and that would be it. So that's my that's my six. Have you thought Three about guys. have you thought about what we'd have to eat? Have you got any ideas to what we'd be sitting there eating? Well, listen, I would be a very bad Nigerian if I didn't say a proper, you know, Nigerian dish, like, you know, egusi and pounded yam, you know, like, <laughs> something that they're like, what's this? You know, what's the, you know, Beyonce would be like, what's this? You know, but I'll be like, try it. You know, you're trying to do the whole African black is king now. So you better, you know, you better eat the food. Yeah, fix up. Um, so... Yeah, definitely, definitely like a Nigerian because I think jollof and all that—that's become like English now. Yeah, it's know? like mainstream now. The proper, you know, the 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 draw soup that you have to eat with your hands—that's that's what I'd, I'd tell people to eat and see how they cope with that. 
this has been a brilliant conversation. Um, <laughs> I guess my last thing to, to wrap up with would be sort of where can people find you? Um, how can they sort of get in touch if they if they have any questions about anything? I suppose, you know, people are aspiring to, to find out more about you. Obviously, they can check out your book. Just use this time to just plug away. Yeah, so um, I can be found on Instagram, Enyeluko, Twitter, Enyelu, although I'm I'm barely on Twitter, really, and don't really converse with people. Um, LinkedIn, Eniola Eluko. Um, LinkedIn's a good platform. And then uh, my book, They Don't Teach This, is available on Amazon um, and in Waterstones. Uh, if you're abroad, you can buy the book from Book Depository. Um, so, you know, thanks to everyone who, you know, thanks in advance to everyone who buys the book as a result of this podcast um and yeah that's it really you can see me sometimes on tv talking about football if you like football that's true great pundit the first <laughs> the first actually i discovered this today you were the first uh woman's pundit on match of the day yeah which is incredible i mean that's another that's another first first on my podcast and you know <laughs> just seems to be a habit of you just being first for everything but um yeah. I thank you Honestly, this has just Thank been an incredible uh, opportunity to sit down and, and converse with you for like nearly the past two hours, I guess, because yeah. we've just been able to, to to chat and chop it up. And I guess one thing that people don't know is that we do. This is literally like a normal conversation that we have all the time, all the time. We're just hearing it recorded now. So I'm so grateful for you, Zach. You know, you're one of them that I'm just like, wow, this guy like just constantly you know we talk about ownership we talk about pushing ourselves pushing ourselves forward pushing the needle for us and and you you definitely have always done that that was one of the reasons I reached out I was like this guy is inspiring and I remember reaching out to you on Instagram you took a bit of time to respond but (laughs) you know so yeah no keep doing what you're doing love it and um yeah super proud of this podcast 